16 this morning, Genesis, first book of the Bible. If you have a Bible, you can go there. I'll be reading the section of Scripture in a moment. I've been doing a, a 100-day kind of overview of, it's called the Essential 100. It gives you 100 days in the Essential Scriptures so that you don't get bogged down in some of the more um, taxing parts of Scripture or ones that there's a huge gap between where they were, where we are, and we kind of maybe just give up some of the Levitical laws, for example, and your eyes glaze over. And one of the things right out of the gate that hurt my heart was that they were like, Essentials 100, okay, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Genesis 6, and I was like, oof, you didn't put Cain and Abel in the Essential 100, that hurt my heart. And I know you've got to trim down a lot if you're getting down to just 100 days in the most um, important parts of scripture, but man, I would say this account is deeply, deeply essential, and we can learn a lot from it. Very dark passage, but very, very powerful, so I'm going to read through it. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain, and she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil, in the course of time, Cain brought some fruit, some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. And so Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know. He said, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. And so Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Just by a show of hands, this isn't like a gotcha moment or anything. How many of you would say you are fairly familiar with this story? Just put your hands up. Okay, really good. That's very encouraging for me to hear. This story is unbelievably layered and powerful. Look at these first few verses. We have Adam and Eve producing two sons, Cain firstborn, then Abel, says that Abel kept the flocks, he's a shepherd, Cain works the soil, he's kind of following in his father's footsteps of being a gardener. In the course of time, Cain brought some fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, 
The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he didn't look with favor. And Cain was angry, and his face was downcast. And if you read this quickly, you might, it might appear to you as if God is arbitrarily choosing to accept one person's offering and to reject or not accept the other person's. And it might, if you know anything about the Greek or Roman gods that were kind of famously impetuous and um, weren't kind of operated with a lot of emotional volatility, it might be easy for you to read that into the text. Well, here's God arbitrarily saying like, well, I'll accept that, but not this one. But there's actually a reason given in this text for why the offering of one person is acceptable and why the offering of the other one isn't. Cain brings some of the fruit of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brings fat portions, which in that time was considered to be the choicest parts of the animal, most calorically dense, from the firstborn of his flock. Firstborn meaning the first, the most important, the most significant. Abel brings a costly, best or perfect sacrifice. And Cain brings some of what he's got. It's an offering, but there's not the same intention behind it, and there's not the same faith. In the New Testament, it talks about how um, it was Abel's faith that made his offering acceptable to God. And faith here doesn't mean that Abel believed in God and Cain didn't, because they obviously both believed in God. They're offering the sacrifice. But faith here is about active trust, that Abel was bringing this in order to honor and please God. And the inference in the text is that Cain brings it because maybe he feels like he has to, or um, it, it's duty. And he's, he's, he's executing the sacrifice, but it's sort of like, this is gonna be what it's gonna be. I'm not bringing my best. I'm not gonna put a lot of thought into this. And God can kind of take or leave it. Abel brings the best. Cain brings second best. And one of the patterns, one of the themes that we're introduced to about the kind of sacrifice that God requires from us is that God does not accept second best. If we want to please and honor God, we don't just, metaphorically speaking, throw whatever we got on the altar and be like, there you go, God. Oh, here's some pocket change. Whatever. That's great. This should be good enough for you. What happens here in Genesis 4 gets clarified through the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament, which is the sacrifices that are acceptable to God have to be the best. And they've got to be costly. In Leviticus 22, for example, God says anyone who's bringing any kind of offering to God, he says, don't bring anything with a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. When anyone brings from their herd or flock an offering to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or as a free will offering, it must be without defect or blemish to be acceptable. Do not offer to the Lord the blind, the injured, the maimed, or anything with warts or festering or running sores. Do not place any of these things as the, on the altar as a food offering presented to the Lord. God says, I, the sacrifice that is appropriate to give me is not second best. It is your best. And it needs to be costly 
Because when someone under David's rule says, I, I, I want to honor you, David, as the king, and I want to give God thanks for what he's done in, in, in establishing you as king, I am going to um, use one of my um, ox to, I'm going to give a sacrifice in your name, on your behalf. And David says, no, I will pay you for that. He says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Then it's not a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice for you, David says, but it wouldn't be a sacrifice for me. And God wants the sacrifice from me to be my own and my best, and it needs to cost me something. In Malachi 1, God says, a son honors his father and a slave his master, and if I'm a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. He says, it's you priest who show contempt for my name. But you ask, whoa, 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 how have we shown contempt for your name? And God says, well, when you offer blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? Right? You keep the best animals for breeding purposes for yourself. And you're like, oh, here's one with a gimp leg. Let's give that to God. When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? And then God says, why don't you try offering that to your governor and see if your governor will be pleased. See if your worldly ruler would be pleased. You invite him to your home and that's what you provide. Would he accept you, God asks his people? This is a significant and powerful truth that really lies at the heart and can be a key to understanding what it means to pursue Jesus and to live as his disciple. God will not bless hard-hearted or half-hearted self-serving sacrifice where we live our lives on our terms. Of course, we understand we, we need to honor God, but like God will get the crumbs. God will get the leftovers. And God says, I will withhold my blessing. I will not accept that which is second-hand, second-class, that comes from a hard heart, like maybe Cain had, or at least a half-hearted effort, going through the motions. And that's really interesting, and you can talk about this in your small groups, because in Romans 12:1, it says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living what? sacrifice. And then Paul says, holy and pleasing to God. So now that we are saved by grace, we're not saved by works, but now that we are saved by God's grace and we have God's spirit, what God is birthing within us is a passion and a desire to not simply just say, I'm forgiven. Now I just live on whatever terms I want and praise God because I can just sin and whatever. God's loving and forgiving. It's no, my whole life is meant to be a sacrifice that is costly to me to honor the king, and where I'm learning, we don't get it all at once, but we're learning in all the different dimensions of my life what it means to bring God my best. When I show up for work, when I engage with my spouse, how I use my body, where I put my finances, I'm learning to say, God, how do I honor and please you by giving you my best and not just going through the motions, not just throwing out anything and saying, that's what I got, God, so just deal with it and putting my best effort towards something else. And so the question that this little section of scripture raises for me is, 
Am I bringing God my best in, across different dimensions of my life? What does it mean to bring God your best, right? In some of these areas, right? What does it mean to bring God your best and to please God in your marriage, in your friendships, on your sports team, in school, in your work commitments, in your retirement, with your finances? The two principles are you give God the first fruit, you give him the best of what you have, and you give in a way that is costly. So right away, early on in Genesis, we are hooked into this theme where God says, following me is going to be demanding. But it's going to be a demand. And as Jesus says, I'm gonna give you a yoke. You don't not have a yoke, you're gonna have a burden. But it's easy and it's light and it's life-giving. As you submit into it, you're gonna be like, yeah, this fits, this is for me. This is a constraint that actually focuses and releases me into who God has made me to be, and I can rest in it. But what does it look like for you to bring God your best? Even something as simple as when you show up to church, right? You can show up to church and kind of be like, I'll sing the songs and my mind's kind of over here and I kind of, again, going through the motions. The difference between entering into this space intentionally and saying, I'm gonna bring a sacrifice of praise. I'm gonna sing. Maybe, I don't have the greatest voice, but I'm gonna sing and be on the threshold of maybe losing my voice. I'm gonna pray and mean it. I'm gonna give in a way that is costly and that pushes against my ego. Verse six, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? More than one Jewish commentator on this, on this text said that when God, the, the word there for will you not be accepted is a word that can just as easily be translated as, or literally in the Hebrew, if you do what is right, will there not be uplift? That's about as direct as you can get it from the Hebrew. Or exaltation. And it doesn't mean that God will uplift you and exalt you. But the commentators say, notice what God is saying here. God is saying, listen, I want you to prosper, Cain. If you do what is right, there will be uplift. And, and these commentators point to the fact that that is a powerful truth about the way that God has designed the world, that when we do what is right, there is uplift. We just, on a very personal level, we just feel better when we do the right thing, when we overcome the temptation towards darkness, which led one commentator to say, if doing right leads to uplift internally, and God's blessing that comes from that, why don't more people do what is right? And I think this is a good insight, and ooh, this, um, this was challenging for me to hear this week. He said, because we often pursue what is immediately fun and pleasurable, and often doing good is not fun, right? Think about the difference between immediately defaulting to turning on Netflix, fun, pleasurable, versus taking some time and uh, connecting with God intentionally with prayer and Bible study, or, or writing a letter to a friend, or picking up the phone, or volunteering somewhere. That second category of things, those are things that in the moment don't necessarily always feel fun, but there's also an uplift that happens when you do those things that doesn't happen 
after four hours of binging on Netflix. When you turn the Netflix off, you're not like, wow, I am uplifted. I can just feel God's uh, goodness just exalting me in my spirit, right? You, you escaped. And in, at any moment when you're watching that show, if you're like, are you having fun? Are you relaxing? You, you know, oh yeah, for sure. But there's no uplift. And so again, there's another brilliant insight here, which is, are you through your life going to pursue what is fun and pleasurable in the moment? Or are you gonna pursue true joy and happiness, which comes from doing what is right and comes from doing what is meaningful? And in our best moments, hopefully we say, yeah, I wanna have a meaningful life, I wanna have a happy life. You need to understand that a happy life comes from doing things that are costly, that are challenging, but that are right. And when we follow through and we have that experience of like, wow, it was really tempting to just check out and do this, but I took 10 minutes, I took a half an hour, and I did this instead, man, that feels really, really good. And the example they used was visiting someone who's sick, going to a shut-ins home, and just connecting with them for a half an hour versus watching TV for a half an hour. You know what's going to uplift you. But there are so many distractionary opportunities in our world where we're just continually beckoned by fun, like just the immediate impulse gratification. But learn to be suspicious of that. It doesn't mean it doesn't have a place in your life, but it's very easy for that to become your default position. Don't let that happen. Pursue meaning and the pleasure that comes from doing things that are right. If you do not do what is right, God, said, God warns Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to ha have you, but you must master it. Something that I didn't notice before is God says, if you do not do what is right, sin crouches at your door, meaning life tends to take on a bit of a moral momentum. Sin isn't crouching at his door, but if you continue to not do what is right, there'll be an escalation, and sin is at your door, and it will seize you. And so be very careful. Don't be flippant about choices that you make with your words and in your mind and your intention with your body because those can take on a life of their own. Maybe you know that from personal experience. You probably know it from observing people around you. And this is uh, one word that I just wanted to say here pastorally, and I say this to myself too, is this is really important in the context of discipling and disciplining children because there are different movements which really advocate having a very, very open concept of allowing children to kind of experience life and maybe not provide as much guidance in the hopes that kids and maybe teenagers too will figure things out on their own. That is not a wise stance. We as parents need to come back to basics we express lots of love and affirmation towards our kids. That's super important in all kinds of ways. Show your kids that you love them. And there's nothing that they can do that can make you unlove them. But also set clear expectations. Expectations that demand something of them. Saying, I, I'm expecting you to be good. I don't want you just to have fun and to find pleasure in the moment. I want to teach you what it means to be good and to feel that uplift that this is the way God has created you to live as a human being. And then clear consequences for right or wrong decisions. Because if, even in well-intended ways, we allow too much negative moral momentum to build in our child's life, sin is crouching at their door. And its desire is to have our children. 
Now again, that, that, that applies to all of us, but I think there's an especially important note there to us as parents in a culture that really encourages us to just kind of let go and let kids find their own way. We need to be discipling our children, not in a heavy-handed, overly strict way, but in a way that does show them we are fighting for their best and we are pointing them in a direction of God's love and truth and grace. And God says to Cain, you must rule over it. He says, sin is crouching at your door, but you have the capacity to take control. And this is really interesting because Christians have this, depending on the camp that you're in and different voices, you might have heard an idea that kind of says, yeah, we can have full mastery over sin. We can, it says right here, you can rule over sin. You can just make a decision. You can pray. You can get to a place of spiritual depth where you can just be sinless even. Some Christian traditions have even gone so far as to say that. And then you might have hear other voices that say, you know what, this is, um, we're just overwhelmed by the power of sin. And so nothing that we do, we, we can never really make any dent to sin's power in our life. We're totally dependent on God's power. And uh, without him, we can never make any inroads. And, you know, I think what this passage teaches and something that gets reaffirmed in 2 Timothy is that God has given human beings just the ability to fight against sin and win the battle against particular sins we can't fight sin, capital S, the power that holds our heart. We need a heart surgery from God to deal with that. But if you think of besetting sins, compulsive lying, um, you know, let's say pornography or temptations toward adultery or um, extortion or um, dishonest gain with our money or gossiping, slander, and these particular sins, God holds human beings to account because he says, of course you're tempted, but you can also resist these things. You can put things in your life that even if you are in the middle of doing them, you can say, I need to stop this. And God expects that from us. Second Timothy says to Christians, the spirit God gave us doesn't make us timid, but it gives us power and love and self-discipline or self-control, some translations will say. So God challenges us. And that's why in the New Testament, you read a lot, put to death, therefore, these things. There's a lot of empowerment given to us to say, don't go around in your life and saying, oh, all these, I just struggle with this sin and I probably will to the day I die. And what are you going to do? I'll just wait for heaven. It's like, don't go, don't go around being a spiritual victim. Take stock of things, confess your sin to God, find resources through your friends and pastor and different people that will help you confront this sin and deal with it. It might not happen over, overnight, but God's saying, like, you can master it. You can get out from under this besetting sin. Which raises the question, what is our attitude towards sin in our life? Are we kind of casual about it because we've kind of inherited this view that says, well, we're all sinners, I guess. We all sin, so no one's perfect, so whatever. As long as I avoid doing, like, really bad stuff, I won't really wor worry about it. Or... Do we consistently come to God and say, God, will you test me and try me and show me if there's any offensive way in me and be open to what God says? And then even if everyone around you is saying, oh gosh, Jeff, don't worry about that. Like, you're a pretty solid guy, but I'm like, God has really convicted me of this and I need to do less of this and more of this. I'm gonna still do that. Even if I'm not being reinforced or encouraged to do that by other Christians around me, right? Like I'll follow God and even if other people are like, I don't feel like I need to pursue God in that way or get that rigid about some of this stuff, 
God puts it on my heart, I wanna be able to say, yeah, I need to confront this with wisdom and urgency. Okay, now we're getting to the meat of the story. Verse eight, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out in the field. Cain attacks his brother Abel, kills him. Remember, Cain brings some stuff to sacrifice to God, not accepted. Abel brings the best, very costly. God accepts it. Cain kills his brother Abel, clearly out of resentment, anger, envy. When you encounter someone in your life who is more blessed than you, who has more than you do, they're more attractive, they have more money, they're smarter than you. You can see they've had different social privileges that you haven't had. They seem to have better relationships, they have a better marriage than you do, they have closer friendships. They just are more satisfied. When you encounter people like that, there are really only two reactions that can take root in your heart. You can either celebrate that and learn from those people, or you can allow envy to begin fostering resentment and anger and bitterness in your heart towards them, but also towards God. Because that's not fair. Why don't I have those same things that that person has? I have a right to that. And envy is called in some traditions one of the seven deadly sins. It's called out again and again in Scripture as particularly dangerous. And I could do a whole message on envy. I'm not going to go there. But, you know, think about the story. Cain could have observed the different responses that God gives to his sacrifice and Abel's and said, wow, I, I, I blew this. I need to go to Cain and say, Cain, or sorry, I need to go to Abel and say, Abel, how did you get to a place where you're like, you're bringing God your best? I want to learn from you. He could have repented. He could have said, I made a mistake. I'm going to do better next time. He doesn't, though. He's resentful. He feels entitled to the blessing, even if he brings a second-class offering. And then he takes out his vengeance on his brother, which is totally unjustified, right? But he sees it as a kind of a zero-sum game. We both brought a sacrifice. Cain, or Abel got blessed. I didn't. So it's kind of Abel's fault. Cain doesn't understand that God is more than willing to bless both of them if Cain does what is right and brings an appropriate sacrifice. But already Cain has been overcome by envy. And envy, or to covet, depending on your translation, is to want something which belongs to another person. And this way of thinking is very tempting, especially today where social media has made it very easy for people to broadcast their highlight reel and you compare it sitting in front of your computer to your not highlight reel regular life. Look at that vacation, look at that vehicle, look at that fun, look at that joy. I want that, they have it, I don't. Whose fault is that? Is that their fault? Are they rubbing it in my face? Is it God's fault? This is a huge story that warns about envy. A person who does not covet what other people have is not only content and happy, 
but less likely to spend a huge amount of energy and time living in anger and resentment. When I read this story, I think, has envy taken root in my life? Maybe not in its totality, but maybe in a certain portion. Do I notice resentment when people talk about these things or I feel like I'm going through a season where everyone around me is experiencing blessing and prosperity and I'm not? Am I able to enter into their joy and celebrate with them and to trust God and to be faithful to God in that season when I feel like from my vantage point, I keep drawing the short end of the stick in terms of my health or my finances? Am I eager to learn from those people? That's a real test of character, right? Those two paths are very, very different and they're the only two paths you can go. Celebrating those people and learning from them and incorporating those godly habits into your life or allowing resentment to take root. It's important for us every day to be grateful for what we have and to be careful not to compare what we have with other people and then to do what is right. Take steps to learn what God says will help facilitate blessing in our lives, in our marriages, finances, in our workplaces. Again, these aren't, God's blessing isn't like a finite pot and after this side of the room does it and God's like, oh, sorry guys, empty. They got to it first. It's like there's more than enough blessing to go around, but we have to be humble and do what is right and be willing sometimes to take the hard medicine of saying, maybe there's something that I have done or haven't done that is contributing to my stuckness and to have the humility to go to God and say, God, where do I need help? What do I need to turn from? Go to trusted Christian friends around me and say, this is embarrassing. I'm, I'm really struggling with my finances. I just feel like everything is out of control. I don't feel like at my age or stage of life that I, I, I should be in the state of financial chaos that I am. I don't perceive you are. Can you help me align my finances with the way God wants me to live? I'm asking for your help. I understand that takes a lot of humility. But the only other path is just to double down into resentment. Verse nine, the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? This is the famous you know, question from the story. Notice the hardness in Cain's heart. When Adam sins and Eve, they hide from God, but there is, um, there's a clear indication of guilt. Cain here is like, I don't know. You expect me to take care of my brother? Like, am I, am I the person in charge of, which he is, he's the firstborn, so he, like, he literally is. But Cain just has this really, really hardened indifference towards not just another human being, but his own brother. And then in a few generations later, we won't um, look at this passage, but a few generations later in Genesis 4, in the end of the chapter, one of Cain's descendant, descendants named uh, Lamech will boast in his sin. So there's this evolution that happens in the early chapters of Genesis. Adam sins and has guilt. Cain sins and is like, meh. Lamech sins and is like, look at me. Look at my sin. You think God was angry at Cain? Like, he must be furious with me. Because I'm, I'm big time. I'm like capital S sinner. So there's this clue in the text that sin as a power is taking root and expressing itself in ever increasing and violent ways. 
And when, God, when Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? That's the same word that is used when Adam is placed in the garden to um, work it and to take care of it. And of course the answer is, yes, Cain, you are your brother's keeper. Like when we ask that question, am I my, like do I have a responsibility to other human beings or just myself? No, we have a responsibility to other human beings and specifically to those in our family. And I know families are weird and they can be wildly uncomfortable and there can be all kinds of personality conflicts and even worse, families can be ground zero for some awful abuse and neglect. But wherever it's possible, we all enter into our families and say, I am my brother's keeper. God designed the family and his ideal to be the first place where we experience a microcosm of how the world is supposed to be. Where a mother and a father, while fully expressing the goodness of God and reflecting his goodness into this family, have this space where these little ones can be nurtured into all the most important aspects of life and to have security and love and grace shown to them over and over again and they're formed in that crucible of love and care. We are our brother's keeper. Families, at whatever stage we're at, there's a way that we can reach out to provide safety and support and protection to those within our family. Maybe reconciliation has to happen first. Maybe forgiveness needs to happen first. But we need to be careful that we don't ever come to a place where towards other people or towards close family and friends, we have this indifferent attitude that Cain does. I don't know what's happening in their life, whatever. They made their bed, they can lie in it. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. And then God places Cain under a curse. And he says, when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. That's different than Adam's curse, right? Adam's curse is, it will yield crops. It'll just be tough. Cain is like, it's, it's not gonna work for you, buddy. You're sentenced to be a restless wanderer on the earth. That's a really big curse in a culture where land is a big part of your identity and your livelihood. You're never gonna be able to settle. You'll be restless internally and externally all the days of your life. And then Cain says, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land that I will be hidden from your presence. I'm gonna be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. What do you notice about Cain's response? Who's Cain worried about? Himself. It's all self-referential. There's no remorse over what he's done. No thought to the consequences of his actions to Abel or to Adam and Eve. This is kind of a way of Cain being like, this is like super unfair. I'm gonna repeat back to God all these bad things that are happening to me. And again, you see the insidiousness, the insidiousness of sin, the sense of entitlement that Cain has. The punishment troubles Cain, but not the actual sin. There's no remorse towards God, no remorse towards those he's injured no movement towards repentance, and yet God still spares him. You'd think that Cain kills Abel, God's gonna kill Cain, eye for an eye. That would be just. God doesn't. He says, I'm gonna put a mark on you so that people know who you are. Anyone who kills you, I'll, I'll avenge in a more severe way. I'm gonna protect you. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. 
Now, read on its own, this is a pretty dark story. If you're reading it for the first time, you'd be like, this is kind of a, this is a really depressing story. Genesis 3 is bad. This goes from like bad to like pretty worse. You know, if Genesis 3 is about the fall of humanity, Genesis 4 is like the fall of the family. These relationships where they're supposed to be your tribe and on your team and protecting you and supporting you, that's the very person that Abel finds himself most vulnerable to and a victim of. But if you read this story in light of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, it's really, really powerful. And in verses 10 and 11, God says to Cain, what have you done? He says, I want you to listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And this is language that we would use today. When a grand injustice happens, people will still use language like, what has happened cries out for justice. This isn't something that you can just observe and see and be like, well, yeah, the world's not a perfect place. It's like, this is so bad. It demands action. And yet, one of the questions that the Bible begins to put before us as the Old Testament unfolds is, do we actually want God to execute justice? Like capital J justice? And think about that, because usually what that means is that there's going to be justice for all, against all, and God is going to deal with everybody according to their wrongdoing. That would be just. But that's not often what we mean by justice. What we want is for God to deal with other people's sins seriously and soberly, and I want God to deal with my sin ever so graciously. That would be great, right? Do we want God to deal with us according to our sins or to his grace and mercy? But if God is really good and is genuinely just, how can he not deal with us according to our sin? And the answer is through Jesus. In Hebrews 12, the writer of Hebrews talks about the fact that Jesus is a mediator of a new kind of covenant, a new kind of relationship with God. And it says, the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's a weird reference. But it makes sense if you think about it this way. Abel's blood cries out from the ground for Cain's condemnation. I was wrong. He's at fault. Kill him. Judge him. Condemn him. Jesus' blood cries out for our acquittal. They're guilty. They deserve condemnation. I'm crying out grace and mercy over them. His blood frees us. It doesn't condemn us. It saves us. Jesus is the true and better brother who doesn't shed our blood and kill us. He sheds his own blood and dies for us so that we can obtain the ultimate blessing, which is eternal life with God forever. And so when you look at the cross, know that you are a sinner who, spiritually speaking, stands in the line of Cain. And listen as God the Father says, look at what Jesus has done. And listen, Jesus' blood cries out to me from the ground, and his blood covers your guilt and cleanses you from all of your sin. 
And so now you are under my blessing and you are welcomed back home because Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf has been accepted as costly and pure and perfect. Let's pray. God, I thank you that in you and through you, by your sacrifice, by your shed blood, that blood cries out a better word than Abel. That you deal with the severity of our sin by coming in our place and absorbing the wrath yourself so that you can be perfectly just, but you can also be perfectly merciful by applying grace and mercy and applying Jesus' perfect sacrifice to our account, on our behalf. These are deep, big truths, God, and they're hard to fully wrap your head and heart around. And I, God, I would just ask that you would help us to do that by our spirit. Enlighten us so that we see the glory of your sacrifice, the greatness of who you are, and the fact that in you, um, the deepest and darkest sins can be overcome by your love and light. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.